You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. All right, we are back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We took a break um, for Advent season, and uh, I'm excited uh, for us to jump back in uh, today. The Gospel of Mark, just as a a reminder, uh, I want to just kind of refresh you. Uh, The purpose of Mark, there's there's kind of a threefold purpose that we see in the Gospel of Mark. The, the, The Gospel of Mark is one of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four Gospels tell the same story uh, with some different emphases here and there uh, from different perspectives, different uh, disciples and uh, different accounts based on the testimony of disciples. And Mark is written primarily through the testimony of Peter, but Mark is also a close associate of the apostle Paul. And Mark writes, I think we can see these three purposes. There's a pastoral purpose focused on helping Christians understand the nature of discipleship, a missionary training purpose, helping uh, Christians understand what it means to follow Jesus on his mission and to show others how to do the same. And then, as all the Gospels do, there's an apologetic purpose in that they're presenting Christ as the Son of God, as the Savior, uh, to to be believed uh, as the one who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And and the Gospel of Mark I love because it has a really simple outline uh, This may be somewhat reductionistic, uh, but I think it's reflective of what the text actually shows us. After the introduction and then the postscript at the end, uh, which sometime in 2025 we'll get around to, uh, but uh, the the main focus of the book is twofold, the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Everything up to Mark 8, which we'll end, uh, uh, we'll we'll look at on Easter Sunday, is driving towards this, this question of who is Jesus? And, and Jesus is telling us that he's the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. We get that at the introduction at Mark 1. But from Mark 1, 1 to Mark 8, 38, we have this looming question of who is Jesus. And then in Mark 8, 34 through 38, I love that passage because it's kind of like a pivot passage in the book. And that it, it brings together the question of, well, if Jesus is the Savior, the promised Son of God who's going to be rejected and crucified and, uh, and raised from the dead, then what does it mean to follow him? And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Um, and, and we see the, the call to follow Jesus on his mission. And then the, the remainder of Mark 8, as we look at the uh, Mark 9 and 10, especially uh, in the fall, is really a discourse on discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus on the way to the cross. Uh, If we serve a suffering servant, what does it look like for us to follow in his steps? Um, And so we see the identity and the mission of Jesus. So we're in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34 today. um, And it follows on the heels um, of Mark 4, 1 through 20. and Mark 4, 1 through 20, and the Mark chapter 4 as a whole is really the parable chapter. It, it's a summary uh, of some of Jesus' teaching, his parables that he would teach often to the crowds. And uh, we saw last time we looked at this in Mark chapter 4 that the parables aren't just like pithy stories with a memorable point. Like they are, they are memorable, uh, but in, 
Uh, in many ways, Jesus tells us that the parables have, have kind of this uh, purpose underneath them that is both revelatory and, uh, and, and kind of uh, a, a measure of, uh, of exercising or rendering judgment. Uh, and the difference is whether or not you're open to Jesus, whether or not you're receptive to his teaching. To those who are receptive to his teaching, the parables come and they reveal the nature of the kingdom. To those who are hard-hearted to Jesus, the parables only further harden their heart and render judgment uh, for, uh, for those who, who are unwilling to, to receive who Jesus is and what he says. And, and today we're going to see uh, our passage has two sayings, Two parables and then the summary statement. But the, the two sayings really follow from the parable of the sower, or really I like to call it the parable of the soils because it focuses on the, the receptivity of the heart of those who hear the message of the gospel. But in Mark chapter 4, uh, 1 through 20, we saw that God is working through the word and God desires to use us to share the word. That's, that's kind of what we saw in Mark chapter 4. The emphasis in the parables is on the kingdom of God and how God works in the kingdom. And, and the, the fundamental principle that we must understand is that God works through the word. And that the, the emphasis is on God, not our activity uh, throughout these parables. But uh, throughout the rest of the scriptures, we see that God has a role for us to play in sowing the seed of the gospel. But it is God who does the work. And here in our passage, we have, uh, I think today, the best way to describe it is some further clarification and encouragement uh, for us as we think about the kingdom of God and how God works through the word. So verses um, 21 through 25 focus on our response to the gospel of the kingdom uh, and how important it is for us to have ears to hear. And then verses 26 through 34 tell two more parables that help us to understand the, the nature of God's kingdom and, and how the kingdom grows. Um, but sometimes when we talk about the kingdom of God, I feel like it, it feels really distant from our everyday life. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, remember, we're not first and foremost talking about a place. We're talking about God's rule. We're talking about God himself ruling and reigning in the world and in our lives. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about what in the world is God doing in the world and in our lives and, and even right here in our church. And so uh, I want us to understand that the kingdom of God is intensely practical and personal for us. I mean, think about it this way. If in your life, if you think about the kingdom of God, many of us have questions like, what's God doing in the world? Maybe, maybe you look at the headlines around us and you're like, where is God in all of this? How is God working? And many times the, 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 uh, the, the critics of Christianity will say, look at this world. If, if there's a God who's ruling and reigning, like he's got some catching up to do because this is a whole lot of trouble out there. Right. And, and, and if you step back from the headlines and you look at your personal life, if I had to guess, because I put myself in this category, some of us have probably asked God, God, what are you doing in my life? <laughs> maybe maybe you felt the the struggle of the of growth in the Christian life where you've you've kind of wondered, God, like I'm doing all the right things, I feel like, but I don't feel any growth. I, I, I either maybe feel stuck or maybe I feel discouraged. It can be easy to, to not see how God is at work or, or maybe not feel God working. We think about it as a church, like we're excited about what's ahead of us as a new year uh, in the new year and what God's doing in our church. And yet there are times when I think about myself, both as a pastor, I think about our church and I think, man, I, don't, 
I wish you were working more in this area. I wish I saw more growth in this area in our lives personally, in our devotion to God, or maybe our reach of the gospel. I want to reach more people, God. And, and yet, God, we're, we're being faithful, but where's the fruit, God? I don't know if you've ever had that feeling or that thought in your ministry to others. Maybe it's a family member that you're praying and ministering to, a coworker, a friend. You're sharing the gospel. You're seeking to reflect Christ. You're praying for them. And as you pray, like you're, you're trying to sow the seed and, and yet you're trying to water it. And you're like, God, I know you're the one who gives the growth. And yet I don't see any growth. And what we're talking about in this passage addresses all of those scenarios. It helps us to understand what God's doing the nature of the kingdom and how God works in the kingdom to bring about his purposes. And so uh, there are two big topics that I think Jesus addresses. And the first is here in verses 21 through 25, and that's responding to the gospel of the kingdom. We, we saw in the, the parable of the sowers or the four soils that God works through the word. And what matters is one's responsiveness to the gospel. The same gospel message goes out and, and different people hear it and some people reject it. Some people are excited initially and then they fall away either because the cares of life, the, uh, the allure of money, uh, the sorrows and the troubles of life snatch it away and they turn away from Christ. But then there are others who it falls on good soil and they're rece- receptive and responsive to the word and it begins to bear fruit. And so there's this question of like, God, how do we make sense of, of how different people respond to the gospel? In this room, the same message will go out and yet you all will respond differently. What will determine how we respond to that message? And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. So he says uh, to the disciples, and most likely I think at this point, perhaps to the crowd around him as well, he says, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The implication is, no, you don't bring a light in to cover up stuff. You bring a light in to give light. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to life. This saying, as it relates to the oil lamp, is is telling us that the gospel of kingdom is, is hidden, at least partially now, but it is going to be made known clearly. So the, the, the message of the gospel is hidden in part now, but it is going to be made known fully. We've seen a number of times as Jesus does miracles that he tells the person that, they, that he healed to not tell anyone. We call this the messianic secret. And it's kind of confusing when you read it. You're like, why doesn't Jesus want anyone to know? Um, and part of it is because people don't yet understand rightly who he is and what kind of king he is. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, that now the message is hidden in part and it's spoken through parables now but it is going to be made known fully in the time to come. And what is that time to come? I think there's at least three ways in which this happens. It happens after the resurrection. People begin to see clearly who Jesus is and what he said and taught. We see it also at the return of Christ that one day, fully and finally and ultimately, people will understand and know who Jesus is. They either will have bent the knee willingly in worship in this life or they will bend the knee and judgment in the life to come. Sobering thought. So between the resurrection and between the return of Christ, how is the message of the gospel made known? And I think the answer to that question is through the mission of the church. I think Jesus is in part telling the disciples, after I rise from the dead and before I come back again, you are going to be sent out as my witnesses. And the message of the gospel is going to be made known. What is hidden in part now will be made known fully in the time to come. 
And so he says, here's saying one, here's the exhortation. In light of that, he says, listen carefully. In fact, he says it this way. He said to them, um, if anyone has ears, let him hear. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. In fact, the, the literal rendering of what Jesus says here, he mixes two, met, two images. He says, see what you hear. Pay attention closely to how you listen. Listen carefully because your response to the gospel is what will determine the present trajectory of your life and the eternal destiny of your life. How we respond to Jesus' message is the most important thing about us and about any person. And so Jesus says, because of this to his disciples who are going to be sent out, pay attention to the crowd who is listening. Pay attention because this is the way into the kingdom of God through responding in faith to Jesus. And then he goes on uh, to kind of give a second saying that I think in many ways is a warning. And he says in verse 24 at the end of it, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Seems clear enough, right? No, it's kind of confusing, honestly. Like as I read that this week, I'm like, what are we, what are we getting at here, Jesus? Um, there's this sense of like, you know, um, we, we see this in regards to forgiveness. The measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You show mercy, you receive mercy. You don't show mercy, you won't be shown mercy. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. But I think it's a common idea. Here, what I, what I think he's saying in some ways is use it or lose it. If you, if you are responsive to the word of God, God will give you more and more and more. Like you can't get enough of God. That's what's amazing about him. When you believe on him, it's like jumping into a pool. And in that pool, when you get in, you know how a pool works, right? Like you get in and it's usually like, uh, you know, maybe like a foot or something like that or three feet. And then it goes down deep, right? You can't touch. Um, Well, in, in many ways, when you trust in God, you jump into him. There's a place to find firm foundation that you can stand strong in the pool. It's big enough for, it's small enough for any of us to get in, and yet it's deep enough for us to never, never fully grasp and never fully understand and never fully get over how amazing God is. So he says, when you, when you open yourself up to God, when you believe in Him, you will continue to get more and more and more of Him. That's the journey of the Christian life, and then in all of eternity, we'll enjoy it for, forever. But, if when you hear, you do not respond to him, you do not open yourself up to him, you do not receive and respond in faith, and even what you know will be lost. And so what he's saying here, using this image of measures, is how you respond to God and his kingdom will determine either your spiritual growth or your spiritual atrophy. It will either determine the vitality of your faith or the declining of your faith, or perhaps demonstrating no faith at all. One commentator said it this way. He said, those who hear, those who knock until the door is open will find the kingdom disclosed to them. But to those who are hurried in their search, whose knock at the door of life is tentative or brief, will find once a joyous invitation to enter the kingdom to have faded into a mirage of disbelief. I love that imagery. If you're knocking at the door, are you knocking and waiting for God to open? 
knocking and waiting, saying, maybe I don't understand, maybe I don't fully get it, but God, I'm here. When, when Jesus taught hard things in John chapter 6, you can check this out. He was talking about what it means to believe on him and his death and uh, his sacrifice for, for, for sinners. Uh, it was kind of a hard saying, and, uh, and a lot of people left. And, uh, and Jesus looked at his disciples. He said, are you going to leave too? And Peter spoke up and he said, where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. Like, is, is that the disposition of your heart to God? God, I don't always understand what you're saying. I, I, I've, I've got a degree in Bible, uh, and I don't understand what God's word is saying. Uh, one of the greatest uh, assets to my growth as a Christian is that I have to study this every week in order to share with you what God says. And, and all of us need God to help us understand his word. And is our disposition to say, God, I don't always get it. I don't always understand. It. i got some questions here. Uh, I need you to help me explain this. We might say to a friend, hey, this is blowing my mind or this is confusing to me. But my disposition in my heart is, God, this is the word of life. You have the words of life and I want to know you. And when that's your disposition, God will, will always be enough. He will, he will ever satisfy us with himself. But if your disposition when you hear God's word is, you know, I could, uh, maybe, I don't know. I've got other important things. I got, I got other stuff I need to do. There's other stuff that's clouding my mind, that's distracting me, that's taking up my time and my attention, my affection. It may not happen in a given Sunday. It may not happen even in a given year. But when you continually hear God's word and fail to respond to it, it will lead to spiritual atrophy. And so the explanation of all of this, I like to, I like to think what Jesus is saying here is similar uh, to, to maybe what you heard as a kid or maybe what you said to your children or maybe what you've said to your spouse. Um, uh, it, it's summarized in this. I know you can hear me, but are you listening? I know you can hear me, but are you listening? I don't know if this is a technical definition uh, between hearing and listening, but like hearing is like you, you hear the words. You're, you're, you, know, you understand that pe- someone is speaking to you with words, but you are not understanding and responding to those words, right? Um, and so <clears throat> I, I won't pick on um, uh, my own kids. I'll just pick on myself. Um, sometimes uh, when I receive instructions uh, from my lovely wife, it's like I am hearing the words, but somehow I am not comprehending what she is asking me to do, right? Um, it's like, yeah, 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 I'll do that. I'll make the, put that on the stove and put this in the oven and I'll go here and I'll pick that up when I uh, come home and then like, I'm like, what did you ask me to do? You know, it's like I, I feel this way, especially um, when I've been sent to the grocery store. Uh, I like receive the words of the instruction and then I walk in to the grocery store and it's like I fail to remember anything that I was told. Right. Um, also, uh, this isn't just in marriage. This is just in general. I, I'm this way with instructions uh, regarding directions. Like <clears throat> sometimes. Um, you know, there are some people that are just really good with directions and they'll tell you, they'll be like, okay, you know, do you know where to meet me? And I'm like, no. And they're like, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out of your neighborhood and you're going to take a right and you're going to go north uh, on Carpenter. 
Uh, and once you get up to, you know, Ellsworth, then you're going to go west. Um, and then about a mile and a half, you're going to turn. There's a small road. Uh, you're going to turn on Gulfside. And then that's going to take you down here. And it's going to, you know, go over here by the university. And then you're going to go around the university. And there's kind of this one-way loop thing. And if you see the building that's brick over here on the right, and you take a right, not a left, but a right, then you'll get there. You know, and you're like can you send me the address? <laughs> you know, like the only thing I comprehend is what my GPS tells me to do, right? And even that sometimes I miss, you know, the instruction uh, from the GPS. Like I hear you, but I'm not really listening, right? Um, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll go north. And I'm like, I have north, south, east, west. and never eat a sour watermelon. Like I know the direction, but I don't know what it means when I'm driving on the road unless my phone tells me what to do. I, I hear you, but I'm not listening. You see, God doesn't want us merely to hear his word and nod and, nod and, uh, and just verbal agreement. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right on Carpenter, left on Ellsworth. Yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I actually said right on Ellsworth. See if you guys are paying attention. He wants more than that. <clears throat> you see, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's as if God is saying that it's not just knowledge that's sufficient to save and transform us. What God desires is that we would believe and respond to his word in faith and repentance and obedience. It's what James says in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. He says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. To be a doer of the word is what Jesus is calling us to here. To not merely hear the words, but to respond in faith. And it's listening with faith that is the means by which God grows the kingdom. And I love that James says this because, you know, James didn't always listen to Jesus with faith. In Mark chapter 3, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus, John, excuse me, James and his family thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he had lost his way. And here he is saying, don't just hear the words of Jesus, but be a doer. Respond in faith, respond in obedience. You may not have always been a doer of the word. In fact, functionally, you may right now in your life may be more of a hearer of the word than a doer of the word. <clears throat> but God is inviting us to, to respond to him with faith with repentance, with obedience. In fact, this is how God works in our lives. If I could unpack it for us this way, uh, there's three, three steps. <clears throat> Read and listen to God's word. You do that in your own personal devotion. You do that through gathering with the church. Uh, maybe equip classes, Bible studies, uh, conversations, working through a book with someone, all kinds of different ways. The two primary ways, I would say, prioritize personal devotion to God and prioritize gathering weekly with your local church. But read and listen to God's word. And then that's, that's important, right? But there are a lot of people who do that but don't see God working in their lives. And many people who do that and even walk away and don't consider themselves a Christian at all. 
So what, what's the next step? The next step is that we must respond to God's word in faith, repentance, and obedience. And all these three things are important. Faith is the disposition that receives, that trust in God, who he is and what he's done. Repentance is the recognition of our need for him, our sin, our error, our, our need to turn away from ourself and to him, our trusting in other things rather than trusting in him. When God's word speaks, and we see this in Acts chapter 2, as Peter p- preaches at Pentecost, the people were cut to the heart. The word of God cuts us and, and causes us to see our sin and our need for God. And then we respond in obedience. Not obedience to get something from God, but obedience because God has shown us grace and mercy, which we do not deserve. And so we must hear his word, but then we must respond to his word in faith, repentance, and obedience. And here's the secret. Here's the real secret. Step three. Persevere in steps one and two. Do it this week and next week, this month and next month, this year and next year, and for the rest of your life. All the days that God gives you. Read and listen to his word and respond to his word in faith, repentance, and obedience. As Brian McKnight said, repeat steps one through three, or in this case, steps one and two, right? Like this is what we must do. Time and time again, this is what cultivates and and deepens our delight in God. This is what sustains and strengthens our declaring and displaying the gospel of God. This is the way God works in our life. And it is the difference between spiritual growth and spiritual atrophy. I'm not a big worker-outer, but I do understand this, generally speaking. When you work out, it's hard, right? Like, and the way it works is that you're tearing down your muscles in order to build them back up, right? And so it's painful when you, when you work out. And yet when you work out, like, you feel this vitality, like, you know, like you feel good. Like, it's, it's amazing that you feel better even after you felt terrible, like, a few minutes ago. <clears throat> but it's amazing, like, say Christmas comes, right? And you are obligated by, like, by, by principles ancient past to eat the food that's set before you, right? Including the desserts. And there's no time to work out because it's Christmas, right? And, and then after all of that, it's like, it's like you never worked out a day in your life when you try to start back, right? Like it's like all the muscle you had, it feels like it's gone. That's called atrophy, right? I'm not talking from personal experience, but <clears throat> when you don't use it, you lose it. When you aren't exercising your faith, it weakens. But when you are, it's strengthened and there's vitality. And, I, and I'm not saying that it's like a straight line of vitality, right? Because in the Christian life, it's no straight line to the upper right. It's, it's often a jagged line and whirly-whooped and circle here and there and around about there and up this way and down that way and over here and this way for a while and then up. But God is working to strengthen us and to grow us when we're continually responding to his word. And so I just, just want to encourage you that growth comes through the word and persevering in the word and responding to the word and, and faith and repentance and obedience. And if anyone offers you a plan for growth that's, that's dismissive of the Bible or light on the Bible, seek another one. Because that's not how God has designed it. He said, listen carefully and respond to my word. The kingdom grows through the word. And how we respond to it is of utmost importance. It's of utmost importance for our salvation. It's of utmost importance for our growth in the Christian life.
But the second thing we see is the nature of God's kingdom. So the first parable, <clears throat> we see two parables here. The first one focuses on the process of growth for the kingdom. And the second one is this contrast from its beginning to its end. <clears throat> and a helpful summary statement um, I came across in preparation is from fellow pastor and uh, church planner Matt Smethurst. He said it this way in summing up these two parables. <clears throat> in a world that values speed and size... The work of the gospel can appear slow and small. In a world that values speed and size, the work of the gospel can appear slow and small. But don't be deceived. It cannot be stopped. The work of the gospel will not be stopped. And we see this in verse 26. We see that the kingdom of God may, be, may appear to be slow in coming, but it will come in God's way and God's time. Now, not only am I a terrible worker-outer, but I'm an even terrible farmer, uh, right? Um, and, but I find comfort in this description because this farmer, Jesus says, the kingdom is as if a man goes out and scatters seed on the ground. And then uh, the man goes to sleep. And then he wakes up and he does this night and day. And while he's going about doing this, unbeknownst to him and not even understood by him, the seed sprouts up and grows. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. That's your lesson on agricultural today. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. So the parable is this farmer who sows the seed, the farmer goes about his business, and the seed grows and bears fruit. The conclusion for many people when they hear that, many of you astute green thumbs out here, you would think to yourself, well, that's because the farmer tended to the crops. He probably made sure the bugs didn't get them. He probably made sure that the frost didn't cover it. He probably made sure that they were watered appropriately. He, he or she made sure that they took care of the, of the crops and protected it from those pesky, you know, rabbits or other animals that come and take the food and, and did all this stuff. But that's not where Jesus goes. Jesus says this farmer planted the seed and did absolutely nothing. That's my kind of farming, right? Like plant the seed, walk away, come back, bam, harvest. But it doesn't work that way often. You know, if you do that, you have to tend to the crops. But Jesus's point here isn't on the farmer. His point here is that God is the one who gives the growth. It's not through human activity, human ingenuity, and human logic, but it's by God that in his power and in his way and in his time that he produces fruit that comes to the harvest, which is the kingdom of God. So the message of the gospel, like a, like a seed, has the power within it to produce the crop, to produce life. And, and here Jesus is once more saying the word does the work. James, again, before he talks about being a doer of the word, he says in James 1.21, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's the, it's the word that is able to work, that has the power to save. God works through the word, and the word is able to save, and through the word, God will reap a harvest. So the kingdom of God appears slow in coming, but God is working even when we don't perceive it, and he's going to bring about a harvest. In fact, it's somewhat interesting that at the end, the emphasis on the sickle, which is an image often attached to judgment, especially in the Old Testament, I think there's maybe a sense in which this harvest is both this picture of the kingdom of God coming and bringing both salvation and judgment, salvation to those who believe, judgment to those who have rejected him. 
and an encouragement, especially to these believers who most likely at this time, the Gospel of Mark's written late 40s, maybe early 50s, uh, Christians facing uh, opposition to their faith, just like Jesus, to be reminded that though it doesn't seem like it now, God's working and is going to bring about our full and final salvation, and it will even include the judgment of those uh, who reject Jesus. But ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that God has come into the world and he is working through the planting of a seed. He's working through the gospel. <clears throat> I, want to, I want to give a little, a little history lesson that I think um, speaks to us, that reminds us of how God works in the world even when it appears slow in coming. On the screen, you'll see George Lyle. <clears throat> George Lyle <clears throat> was the first um, black Baptist preacher ordained in America, born a slave, became freed, ordained in Georgia as the first black Baptist preacher. He leaves Georgia to go to Jamaica. George Lyle, 10 years before William Carey, who's often called the father of the modern missionary movement, leaves Georgia to go to Jamaica to reach slaves in Jamaica with the gospel. He works in Jamaica um, <clears throat> as a farmer doing work to pay for, his, for himself and his family while he shares the gospel. And as he gets to uh, Jamaica around 1782, 1783, he begins to, to labor in preaching the gospel to many of the slaves in Jamaica. <clears throat> and in his first seven years of ministry, he sees over 500 people come to faith in Christ. And he continues to labor in Jamaica for 46 years until his death in 1828. <clears throat> through his influence and through his efforts of preaching the gospel, uh, the <clears throat> slavery would be abolished in Jamaica in 1838, long before it took place in America. Through his influence, even he, though he dies in 1828, his disciples would go on to preach and plant uh, churches in Savannah, Georgia, and Nova Scotia, and Sierra Leone, and all throughout Jamaica. It's said that when the English missionaries got to Jamaica in the um, mid-1800s, some 20 years after George had been laboring and doing ministry there and planting churches, it was said that there were about 8,000 believers mostly amongst the slaves and some uh, amongst the, the freed men and women in the area. By the time we get to 1832, just four years after Lyle's death, there are some 20,000 Christians in Jamaica. George Lyle took the seed of the gospel and planted it in the soil of Jamaica, and God brought about a harvest in his way in his time in a way that many people don't even know the name of George Lyle. And yet God was working through him to bring about his kingdom purposes. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel. And on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, how we can be reminded that it's the power of the gospel that brings about true transformation. And perhaps one of the greatest indictments against American and English Christianity is that some of the greatest opponents of George Lyle as he ministered on Jamaica were not the slaves who opposed him, but the white settlers, even uh, some of the others who identified as Christians who opposed his work. <clears throat> God's word convicts, corrects, restores, 
and brings about redemption in a way that no human ingenuity, no human method can do. And it's good. It's good for for us to see the power of the gospel and how God works and to be reminded today, even as we seek to be faithful to Christ in in our current moment, in the battles and the challenges we face as a nation today, that our hope as Christians isn't in the political process, though you may engage it, and that may be part of how God uses you. It's, it's ultimately <clears throat> in the power of the gospel to transform. And I'm grateful for George Lyle's testimony that demonstrates that. <clears throat> but 10 years after George Lyle goes to Jamaica, William Carey is a, a pastor in England who's stirred by this question. Did God just call the apostles to fulfill the Great Commission, or did he call all of us? To fulfill the Great Commission. And in his Baptist meeting there in England, he, he, he preaches a message that ends up becoming a book called the, here's a title for a book, The Inquiry Concerning the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. There wasn't a modern marketing method at this moment. Um, and so that was the title of his sermon and his book. And his conclusion is that God called all of us to fulfill his great commission. And he left England to go to India. And he arrived in Calcutta in 1793, and he began to learn the language, and he began to learn the culture. And he labored in India until his death in 1834, from 1793 to 1834. But, you know, opposite of George Lyle's ministry in Jamaica, William Carey labored for the first seven years in India before he saw his first convert before he saw the first uh, Indian man or woman come to faith in Christ. He shared the gospel faithfully for more than 40 years, but in many ways, if you evaluate his ministry, the, the fruit of his ministry was relatively minimal. But do you know he said, he's quoted as saying, the future is as bright as the promise, promises of God. And he said, in light of the confidence that God is working in the world, that we can expect great things for God and attempt great things for God. He gave his life to advance the gospel in India. And do you know that little book that went by a long title? It got spread around and it came to America. And there was a college called Williams College in Massachusetts. And a group of college students took up that book and began to read that book. And five of them... Uh, decided that they were going to form a missionary society so that they could send two of their own. And those two they sent were Adoniram and Ann Judson. Adoniram and Ann Judson wanted to go and join William Carey uh, in India, and ultimately God would lead, William, would lead Adoniram and Ann to go to Burma to begin to, to share the gospel in what is now uh, Myanmar. Um, and it's a fascinating backstory that... Um, uh, Judson was a Congregationalist who believed in, uh, in infant baptism. And on the boat ride over, because you had to ride a boat, it was a long way, he knew that he was meeting William Carey, who was a Baptist. So he decided to study his Bible uh, so he could refute Carey's uh, view on baptism. Uh, but as the boat ride went on, as he read the Bible, he became convinced of believer's baptism. And so he got to uh, Calcutta, and he was baptized by one of Carey's associates. 
And he had to send word to the missionary society that sent him that he had changed his view on baptism. And his friend Luther Rice had to come back to America to fundraise for him so he could continue doing work in, uh, in Burma. And so uh, <clears throat> that's just, a, uh, as a Baptist, a great uh, story uh, for, uh, for me. But he gets over there, and, and like Carrie, Adoniram Judson would labor for seven years before a person amongst the Burmese people, came to faith in Christ. Adoniram Judson would lose his wife, Anne. He would lose three of his children. He would marry again, and his other second wife would would also pass away while serving. He would make a trip back to the States to raise more money so he could go back and serve. He would face a, a civil war between the Burmese people and England. He would be put in jail. And he ultimately only gets out of jail in order to negotiate the peace talks between England and Burma. He labors faithfully for the gospel and continually is discouraged. And in many ways, if you read his story, you'll see the reality of a missionary life. It's not romantic and exciting. It's filled with sorrow and suffering. But like Carrie, he was faithful. And he said, and I love this statement, he said, In spite of sorrow, loss, and pain, our course be onward still. We sow on Burma's barren plain, but we reap on Zion's hill. We sow on the barren plain where God has placed us, believing that God is working and that he will reap a harvest. God is working to bring about his kingdom. He will give the growth through his word, so we should not grow discouraged and become weary. And as I think about the application of that life to to us personally, I don't know who and how God might be calling you to be used for his namesake among the nations. But I do know that he desires to use us to work in and through us. And like Judson and Carrie and Lyle, our testimony can be we, we may sow on barren plain now, but we believe we'll reap on Zion's hill. But as we press into our lives personally, let me ask you, do you think God is working in your life according to his plan and in his time? Like when when we get down to the personal application, do we believe that, that God's working in his way and his time in our lives? If we do, then we should continue on, not shrinking back or, or getting distracted. I feel like time and time again throughout our life as Christians, we are tempted to think, There's something better than spending time with God and his word. There's something better than praying a little bit longer. There's something better than prioritizing the local church. There's something better than seeking to repent of sin and grow in your love for God. There's there's something better and more important and more urgent than sharing the gospel with a friend. There's there's something better than serving and giving and uh, and memorizing scripture and and serving God. All, All these things tempt us to believe there's something better. And Mark 4 would tell us, don't take the bait. The kingdom of God may seem slow in coming, but God is working. And we can believe that. Even when we struggle to see God working in our our marriage, in our parenting, in our personal lives, in our relationships, some difficult issues we're facing. Here we have this truth. God is working in His way and His time. We can trust Him. We can lean into Him. We can obey Him. We can rejoice in Him because of this truth. And secondly, in the final parable, the parable of the mustard seed, we see that the kingdom may appear insignificant now, but it will be glorious in the end. Jesus speaks of a mustard seed, which is a common um, 
uh, common <clears throat> um, idea in Palestine that the mustard seed was the smallest of all seed. It's technically there's smaller seeds other than it, but I think Jesus is speaking in a common way that people would understand. It's a small seed that produces a relatively large bush or tree that stands 10 to 12 feet tall in which birds would find shelter and shade. And, 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 and Jesus specifically uses it in, in comparison to the other garden plants uh, that it would grow up with. And so it's not as tall as a mighty oak or redwood, but it's a, a relatively large and significant uh, plant in the midst of the garden. And it comes from this small seed. The contrast is from how it begins to how it ends. And he says, the beginning of the kingdom seems insignificant. So insignificant that it begins with the Savior in Nazareth and doing ministry in Galilee and Capernaum and 12 disciples. Some of them are fishermen and common and even tax collectors and a zealot. And, and, and this is how God's ministry begins. And he's using women to share the message of the gospel and all of these things that seem so insignificant and uncommon in first century Palestine. But yet God is going to work to bring about a glorious kingdom. A kingdom in which not only Jews will be included, but Jew and Gentile. The image of the birds coming to take nest in the shade of the tree takes us back to the prophets who speak of Gentiles coming in to God's kingdom. And here Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to be of such a glorious stature that we can't imagine. A Jew and Gentile united together, brought together in the kingdom of God. What seems small and insignificant now will be large and glorious in the time to come. Speaking of when Jesus, I think, ultimately returns is the picture that we have here. Jesus is saying there isn't anything better than the glorious future promised to us in the kingdom of God. In a world that values speed and size, the work of the gospel can appear slow and small. But don't be deceived. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped in our daily life as we seek to follow God. And the challenge for us that I close with as Rebecca and Trey come back to lead us in a final song is, are we living today as if this glorious future is sure? Are you living today in light of this glorious future? Think about the conversations in your daily life. Parents, think about the time you pull your kid aside and you have a conversation with them or the bedtime devotion or, or the prayer. Every time you sit down and you catch up with a friend over coffee or lunch or you're talking with your mom or dad or on the phone. Every time you're, you're thinking about fighting sin and seeking to put away some sin, dealing with anger, dealing with impatience, dealing with bitterness, dealing with lust. Every sorrow at every trial we walk through, every difficult we face difficulty we face as we think about what this passage is saying it's saying that the stuff of our life the stuff of how God's working in our life may seem insignificant and small the world may look at it and say what is that we may look at it and say what is this and yet God says he is working to bring about a glorious kingdom and we are a part of that kingdom and he is working in us his work in us is his work to bring about that kingdom are we living as if this glorious future is ours? And the challenge is for this glorious future to permeate and to provide perspective for everything in our lives. To not get distracted, to not get caught up in all the other details, but to remember what seems slow and small. God is working to bring about his kingdom and his plan in his way and in his time. And verses 34 through 35 summarize that Jesus continued teaching through the parables 
and that those who listened with faith were able to understand the parables. And the question for us at the end of the sermon is this. Are you listening? And if you are, we'll expect great things from God. We'll attempt great things for God. We'll even seek to be faithful in small things for God. Because we believe that God's kingdom is sure. And his kingdom is glorious. And it's ours in Christ. Let's pray.